100% born in the Appalachian Mountains and made in the USA, Timber Ninja Outdoors provides a range of mobile hunting options to accommodate diverse hunting preferences. Whether you prioritize comfort, lightweight design, or versatility, their two-panel and single-panel saddles collection has something for everyone. The Black Belt Nano is the lightest single-panel saddle available on the market, weighing in under a pound. The saddle is designed with the minimalist hunter in mind, focusing on lightweight functionality and breathability. One notable feature is the patent-pending magnetic stick clip system on the side, which allows for convenient transportation of sticks up the tree, as well as a built-in platform holder. The Nano Saddle can be folded up to the size of a Nalgene bottle, enabling easy portability. With a four-way stretch material on the back for a comfortable fit, as well as strategically placed padding for hip pinch relief. You can use code EASTMEETSWEST to get free shipping on any Timber Ninja order. If you try it out and don't like it, send it back within 30 days for a full refund. Learn more at TimberNinjaOutdoors.com and sign up for their email newsletter for exclusive discounts and product drops. When it comes to optics, I get the same question over and over again. What are the best all-around binoculars? Well, it's tough to find something that works in every condition great, but after using a pair of Maven B1.2 10x42s, I think I found them. They feature an 8x or a 10x option, superior low light performance, tack sharp edge-to-edge clarity, a generous depth of field, and a silky focus mechanism. All of Maven Optics have a lifetime no-fault warranty and hail from the great state of Wyoming. I've been using Maven Optics since I bought my first pair in 2017, and I think you should test them out for yourself. Head over to mavenbuilt.com and use the code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order. For all of those that want a truck bed cover for work or play, Diamondback makes the top of the line heavy duty covers that help you do more with your truck. They're perfect for the truck owning, avid sportsmen, outdoor enthusiasts, and weekend project warriors. I'm currently using the HD cover that can is capable of holding up to 1,600 pounds on the top. And then I have the Yakima overhaul HD bars on top so I can put my rooftop tent on it. When I'm not using my rooftop tent and able to use the trifold design of the Diamondback, I have the Crossbin 8 in there to organize all of my stuff in the back of my truck bed. Diamondback is made right here in Phillipsburg, Pennsylvania. If you want to check them out, head over to diamondbackcovers.com. If you've wanted that hunting camp tradition that we talk about, that experience, but you don't have a hunting camp of your own, you're welcome to come stay at my hunting camp up here in the Pennsylvania wilds called the Elk Crossing Getaway in the PA wilds. So if you go over to Airbnb, you can check out our three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath house that's right in the heart of Pennsylvania elk country. It's only minutes away from a bunch of public land to be able to hunt, hiking trails, outdoor recreation, fishing, all of those things there. The house is completely fully stocked with everything that you need to be able to, to spend a week hunting deer, taking your family up to see the elk, anything like that. So if you head over to Airbnb and search Elk Cross and Getaway in the PA Wilds, you'll find my listing there and you can rent out my house to send us a message and inquiry that you're interested in it and mention that you heard it on the podcast here, then we'll get you 10% off of your first day. Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt Podcast presented by Spartan Forge. On today's episode, I'm joined by Adam Grenda. Adam is a father, entrepreneur, bush pilot, moose fanatic, and trapper who currently resides in Alaska. We discuss what it means to be an entrepreneur, flying planes into remote places, obsession with big moose, the importance of trapping, and much more. Adam is also a part of the Stuck in the Rut YouTube channel where you can find some of his hunts. On this week's Mountain Buck Monday Story of the Week, we have a story coming from Andrew Wycheck out of Virginia. I grew up hunting the Appalachian Mountains in my backyard, but then had a few years hiatus from hunting while I was in the Army. Eventually, I ended up in Virginia hunting the Appalachians again in the National Forest. With the help of your podcast and others like it, I've become much more knowledgeable on hunting public land in the mountains. My entire goal for the last two years has been to shoot a buck deep in the backcountry and pack it out. I was unable to get it done with my bow, but one last chance this season during a rifle camping trip with two of my friends. It was a new area to me, and I had only been able to e-scout it and walk some of the area with my 17-month-old daughter on my back the week before. The first morning, I hiked in and set up my saddle overlooking a nice transition area. I didn't see a thing all morning. It was in the low 20s with 11 to 20 mile per hour winds, so by 11, I was ready to start hiking. I hiked the top of the mountain to check an area I had marked and then still hunted my way across the top of the ridge. I found a lot of nice rubs but saw zero deer, so I continued down the mountain and hiked around to the backside to check another spot I had plotted. My new spot looked great. Had a nice drainage with some small draws funneling to it. To my right were thick pines. To my left was mountain laurel. And where I was was hardwoods. Around 4.15, I saw movement in the pines. I quickly realized it was a buck and got ready. As he moved close, I saw he was a, definitely a shooter, but did not realize how big he was. I got him to stop at 45 yards and took an a shot. He ran 15 to 20 yards and crashed. I was shaking so badly I could hardly pack up my gear and get down the tree. When I got to him, it was clear this was the biggest buck of my life, but I had no signal and my phone had died. I field dressed him, took the heart, liver, and tenderloin of my pack with no phone for mapping, and using my headlamp, I hiked to a trail and followed it back out a mile and a half to our campsite. With no pictures, I thought there was no way that my buddies would believe me. After telling them the story, they insisted we hike back in and get him out that night. Over two hours later and six stream crossings, the three of us were finally back at our campsite with this magnificent buck. Again, I want to thank you for sharing all your knowledge and helping out guys like me. Andrew Wycheck. Well, Andrew, this buck is absolutely incredible. I keep saying it. There's all these bucks that are coming in, just some really good great deer coming a lot of good ones coming out of virginia and and that's some really that's some tough hunting there some big mountains big stuff to remote places to be able to get into but thanks again for sharing this story and i hope everyone goes and checks out the photos of this buck and they they use the the meat pole method uh with getting that deer out which is something that that my family has used quite a bit over the last I guess 10 or 15 years and uh, getting him out of some holes without 
quartering up and packing them out that way. If you have buddies, it's a really good option to be able to pull them out. But anyways, go check out the photos of Andrew's buck at East Meets West Hunt on Instagram or East Meets West Outdoors on Facebook. Yeah, check that out. If you have a story that you want to send in, send it to Bo at eastmeetswesthunt.com. And uh, I'd love to be able to share it on the podcast and and through social media. Uh, In other news, I have... There's a new venison roast recipe that's up on on uh, my website, so eastmeetswesthunt.com slash journal. My buddy, Ethan Demi, who I'm going to be hunting with in Alaska, he's a great cook and does some really amazing things, wild game. So he offered to put some of his recipes on the, the website and a little bit of videos that go along with it. It's pretty cool stuff. You don't worry. I'm not telling you how to how to do any cooking because I've already had comments that some of my cooking doesn't always look the prettiest. So I'm not doing it. <laughs> we'll, we'll let Ethan do that. And uh, but I appreciate him having that article for you and some really good recipes coming in the few weeks here. And also another news. I started posting the new shorter podcast videos on YouTube. So there's a full length episode like you're listening to here now. And there's also clips from key points that are like seven to 10 minutes long that are a little more interactive with supporting clips and stuff. If that's your jam, you like, like being able to uh, visualize some stuff. Uh, Yeah. Check that out on, on my YouTube there. Uh, also, just put up a video on YouTube, the Seek Outside Goshawk 4800 pack that I used last year, kind of my review and rundown on that, and uh, yeah, a bunch of, bunch of stuff coming out, so I definitely uh, pay attention to, to YouTube there. But with that being said, I've been scouting my butt off here and been out in the woods a lot. Uh, covering some ground, finding some great sign, finding some big sheds. I really can't complain. So with that being said, I hope everyone has a great rest of your week and we will talk to you next week. Adam Grenda, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, dude. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, I've been uh, been looking forward to having you on for a while. You and I met, uh, I guess it was a little over a year ago through Cody Rich's. It was formerly the... The, what was it? The Rich Life Course, I think was the original name for it. Now it's the Ideas Lab, but we were in the kind of original entrepreneur class group there together. And that's where where I first kind of was introduced to you there. Yeah, Cody's a great dude and he hosted that. And I just texted him. I was like, is this something I should do? I'm kind of thinking about quitting my job and just going full shed crazy, you know? And, and uh, he's like, yeah, you're like the prime candidate. And uh yeah, that's how we met. So I explained the same story to my wife the other day. She's like, who's this bow guy? I'm like, oh, this is a whitetail hunter that wears Sitka from back east. And she's like, and you're going to do a podcast with him? And I'm like, yeah, he's, he, I was like, he's a good dude. Like, we have really similar interests in uh, entrepreneurship and talking about business. I really like that. Um, and yeah, I had to explain how we met. Yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, no, that was, yeah, Cody's a good dude and, and the stuff he's doing there is great. I mean, obviously it's, it's helped you out. It's helped me out a ton. Uh, I, I love what he's doing with all that. Yeah, it's, uh, it was, I think one of the many factors that kind of led me to like leave my job and stuff like that, but he kind of gave me the push. Like you don't need to have it all figured out. He's, uh, if you listen to his podcast a lot, um, 
he's really anti-business plan, you know, because it's just a guess. It's a hypothesis of where you're going to be and you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. And so all those little things, I think, kind of played into like making me feel comfortable leaving a quote unquote career, you know, and just going out to be an entrepreneur or whatever that word means. I still don't really have the word defined. I think it's just trying to, I asked Cody the other day when I talked to him on the phone, I'm like, I think I'm just trying to put a bunch of stuff together and make it work. And he's like, yeah, that's pretty much all it is. So, yeah. I think he just <laughs> yeah. said that. I think he just said that to make me feel good, but he's really smart when it comes to business. So I, I uh, talked to him. I don't know. I tried to bug him too much, but um, he's got some really good insight on different ideas and stuff, you know? Yeah, no, most definitely. And, and it is funny cause it's kind of hard to define what that term means. And I guess it's just kind of figuring out how to, make money for yourself and not being tied to a certain company or employer. I, I don't know. Maybe that's, I'm not really sure how to define it myself. Well, I know you want to talk about that a little bit. My biggest, I, my two biggest concerns is we were on COVID and everyone went to their house to work. So I was a full-time pilot for the national park service up here. Um, I was making a hundred thousand a year um, federal government job. So a lot of issues and BS dealing, working with the feds. I didn't fit in really. Um, and we had to come back after COVID to a regular office. And I'm like, well, I, I just work from home. Whatever you do as a pilot when you're not working, like you're just killing time. You're doing a couple projects, paperwork and uh, paperwork things. Um, but I missed just raising my kids and seeing my kids grow up and they were homeschooled a little bit there during COVID. And so I missed that a lot. And that was a huge factor. And I didn't want to just be gone all the time. And I was trying to think how to make a shift. And then this sounds really entitled and bad, but I have a phenomenal wife that's like never said no to, I don't have to ask, may I go hunting? It just, it baffles me why guys would marry someone and they have to ask for their like two weekends a year to maybe go to deer camp. Like that's my only real true hobby. Like it consumes me and doing everything. So I just tell her my biggest problem is she wants to go all the time because she's really into hunting too. So that makes it difficult. We got six kids. But I didn't want to have a life where I had to have a wife that would be super cool. But I had to go ask my boss, hey, before everyone schedules flights for the next six months, I want to ask permission if I can go hunting. Can I go moose hunting this week? And then can I go caribou this week? And then I drew a deer tag and I'm going to go hunt whitetails with bow and do all this. There's not enough time. And I didn't want to be the guy that had to ask someone for permission like he's daddy. And I know that sounds bad because 95% of men have to do that and put in a leave request for vacation, but I didn't want to live my life that way. Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, that totally makes sense. I kind of have a similar, similar background on there, which you and I have talked about and the listeners have heard it, so I don't need to go into it, but I, I think that it's, it's cool that you recognize that and then put the steps towards doing that. And I guess what is, what are, what exactly for anyone that's out there now, what are you doing now? Like what, what are some of the, the things that you're doing to be able to leave that job? So it was a lot easier for me than like other people because they are a single income household. My wife started uh, personal training in person. And then the only way to to grow and expand that is to do it online. And then she, she grew a business where she has multiple employees um, for health and fitness coaching, um, men and women, primarily women to, um, it's a long-term program. It's not like a get rich quick or a, sorry, get thin quick scheme. You know, it's six months uh, minimum. And a lot of it's hunt prep, like a guy or a girl says, I'm going to go on a sheep hunt. 
and uh, she'll help them prep for that, get their body ready, their nutrition ready to sustain their health and fitness into that. And then she recently started last summer, these women's retreats. Um, and she has girls come and basically stay with her in the bush for four to five days and do all the stuff she does on a hunt. And it's really, um, revitalizing for them and it allows them to disconnect from no phones, no social media, no emails. And you take a bunch of strangers who are women who like to spend time outside and think they're a weirdo and surround them with other weirdos. And they're like, well, I'm really not that much of a weirdo, you know? <laughs> so she's really, she's really passionate that she's really good about that and has a great business mindset. So she was like, you should just quit your job. Like, do you really want to work for the government in the next 30 years? And I said, no, I really, I really don't. And so we bought a house and built another house, kind of got it dried in while I was quitting. But the house I did buy has two Airbnbs. And I think that made like around 50,000 a year. And so when I was looking at my salary, I took a little bit of furlough. And after taxes, I'm like, if that just replaced my salary, and I did a few side gigs and flew for a couple people on the side, um, you know, maybe picked up a few sheds, I sell some fur in the winter from trapping, I think I can make it work. You know, I want to make maybe not in the first year, but I want to make at least what my salary was or more to bridge the gap to prove to myself I can do this. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's phenomenal. And we've, you and I've talked on the phone about this and, and going through it. And it's, it's the, the thing with entrepreneurship is like, at least for me in my short time of doing it, I feel like it's very, um, it's a very sexy thing that sounds really awesome but it is really freaking hard and stressful especially I me mean, with you having six kids and and building a house and doing all these different crazy things like it's it's not not easy by any means but it's definitely possible and very rewarding to be able to do that would you agree it's very rewarding because like today i don't i'm in sweatpants i just left the gym like i told you yeah. um, i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this and maybe work on some fur and then go pick my kids up from school and take them to the pool if I want to. And I don't need to ask permission. On the flip side of that, it's terrifying because if your wife has some medical issues and she's quote unquote the sole provider of that household, which she was, because I'm still trying to figure out where I'm gonna make money in the space of not having a career and a real job where I had a job every or paycheck every two weeks. And she's having medical complications. And she looks at me and she's like, what are we going to do? You're lying in bed at night and your wife looks at you and you got six kids. And she says, what are we going to do? And you're sitting there like, oh, shit, dude, I don't I don't know what we're going to do. I don't have a backup plan. This is it. I've gone all in. I've quit my job. I can't go back to get the federal job I had, nor would I want to. I can go work somewhere else and fly airplanes. Um, so it's very rewarding, but it's terrifying. But there's the one of the quotes I love, dude is it's actually from church and it says there's no growth in the comfort zone meaning if you're sitting here comfortable you're not going to grow you're going to be a government employee you're just going to ride the coattails of the government every two weeks you get a paycheck sit there and do as you're told so there's no growth in the comfort zone but there's also no comfort in the growth zone so you and i we're not comfortable you know you're not comfortable right now no. you're probably never you're never going to be comfortable but guess what you don't have to ask can i go sit in a tree stand and deer hunt because this time frame of these three days is perfect yeah no it's like yeah that exactly right like for, for me last year when i was like i'm gonna go to montana and hunt elk and i was like i was talking to a couple people uh i was like yeah i'm gonna go out for a couple weeks and they're like why don't you just go like the whole season i'm like i guess i 
could, right? Like, I don't have to ask anybody anymore, you know? And I was like, all right. And, and yeah. so I don't have kids, so it's a little bit different. But I was like, all right, I'm just going to go for three weeks or whatever it takes and just go out and do it. And this year, I'm like, I'm going to go to Alaska twice and go hunting. And, and just like, it's so, that part of it is so amazing. And it's definitely not comfortable at all of like, I was so used to every two weeks getting a paycheck. It didn't matter how hard you really work, to be honest. Like if you're working for somebody, you could be like kicking ass one day, not the other. When you're on your own, you kind of got to kick ass to to be able every to- Every day. Every day to be able to, to do it. But um, yeah, so I, but anyways, I kind of wanted to highlight that at the beginning because it kind of talks a little bit about um, who, who you are and, and your character a little bit and like being able to take risks because right now you live in Alaska, but that's not where you grew up. You grew up in Idaho. Am I right? Yeah. North Idaho, Post Falls, Coeur d'Alene area. Okay. My wife's from Bonners Ferry. So up in the panhandle though, pretty close to Canada. Okay. So talk a little bit about that. Like, I guess let's, uh, like a brief kind of background on, on, you know, how you grew up and if hunting was a big part of it and then what made you kind of make that transition to Alaska? Yeah. The first hunting experience I had, I was three, my dad's deer hunter had bailed on him because it was nasty weather and he wanted to like sit at home, watch football. And my mom said, why don't you take your, your son, Adam? He's like, well, I don't want to take his innocence away. He's only three. And I pretty much grew up on like uh, small boats vacationing in the ocean. And she said, well, when he sees you beat the heads of the salmon against the side of the boat and their brains come out, do you think that's taking his innocence away? And he's like, well, oh, good point. So he went out that day and it was, it was just a memorable experience. My dad shot like a little button buck, you know, and uh, he left me with a 30 odd six there to stand over when I was three. He told me when I was 12, he had unloaded it. And I was pretty pissed because I thought I was like king of the castle, you know standing over this deer if it moves i'm gonna shoot it when i'm three um <laughs> and that that created a monster inside me um and since then my dad um had a lot of issues and different things like that my dad and i but he really devoted a ton of time to taking me and spending time with me and he loved the outdoors and so pheasants quail chucker tons of call and coyotes we went to south dakota he bought a single wide trailer hunted south dakota and that is what instilled a ton of hunting into me and i just i just really 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 enjoy it and i i tell people i liked hunting i feel like you liked hunting before hunting was cool it was just what we did growing up yeah. and that's all we wanted to do opening day of deer season idaho is october 10th i'm like i am freaking pumped dude there is no way I'm going to high school today at all. Yeah. And isn't it funny? Like I, I, um, uh, when I left, I left the area I lived in for a while, <clears throat> excuse me, and moved like down by Pittsburgh. And I was like, wait a second, you guys don't have off work and school the first day of deer season. Cause like, that's just what it was like growing up the yeah. whole way. Look back. I mean, I had no choice. Like if I didn't like hunting, I, my dad would have kicked me out of the house. And that was just the way it was. And we went to deer camp from the time I was a little kid. I just thought everybody did that. And, you know, I think we're lucky in that respect that we grew up with it. And it was just ingrained into it. And when I went to college, I met a bunch of guys there that were all into hunting. And when they weren't at football practice, we were out hunting. And then we'd have a butchering session every Monday night when there was no practice. And we'd be in the garage just butchering up does that we'd shoot either over the weekend or that night. And it was just like, yeah, always, always been a part of my life too. So I can definitely relate on that side. Well, before uh, social media was a thing. 
Yeah, well before even MySpace or anything. It's just it's what we did. <laughs> MySpace. I knew there I knew there were other people that didn't hunt, but I was I've always asked myself like, what would I do if I didn't hunt? Would I like be into sports? Would I be like Seattle Seahawks number twelve man? I could care less. And I asked my dad one time, I'm like, well, Dad, why don't we were going to call Coyotes in Southeast Washington? I said, Why don't you ever watch the Super Bowl? And he's like, Well, well, my dad, your grandfather told me he's like, I'd rather be out there doing it than watching other people doing it. And that's always stood true to me. Like, I don't watch, I have a YouTube channel stuck in the rut, but I don't watch a lot of YouTube. I have six kids. I'm way too busy. I don't watch TV. I just, I live my life and do my stuff because I would rather do that and experience that than watch someone else do it. So I don't know what I would do if I didn't like hunting. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, More money. I would have. (laughs) Fuck done more money. Yeah. And, 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 uh, yeah. And so, I guess from that, is that what is is the hunting reason why you wanted to go to Alaska? Not at all, dude. Um, I was just, uh, so I was also consumed with fishing. That kind of took over my life. They kind of go hand in hand. And all summer, I would be sitting on the lake shore. And my parents dropped me off when I was like nine and 10, just a fat little kid fishing for rainbows using power bait, you know, with a yeah, sliding egg sinker. And I'd sit out there all day to catch like maybe two little rainbows. And finally, my dad said, uh, I think when I was 17, he said, why don't you go to Alaska? I've been, and it's amazing. So I talked to a bunch of people and he knew a guy who had a buddy who owned a place. And I said, Hey, I'm going to work for free. And I just want to fish. If I work for six hours a day, I want to fish for six hours a day. Totally got screwed on that program. Uh, but I did get tips. And so I came back with two grand in tips. I experienced Alaska. And I remember I got a picture of me when I was 17, wearing a set of hip boots and gloves, loading bags and handing them to the bush pilot. And I'm just like, these guys are like gods in Alaska. They transport people. They bring your kid home from the hospital. They bring you food and medicine. And I got home and I told my parents, like, man, in my next life, I would want to be a bush pilot so bad. And that's how what kind of transitioned me from fishing and hunting to getting my foot in the door of Alaska. Ah, that makes sense. And and then you, when did you buy the plane? Like, what? when did you buy your is it Super Cub, correct? Yeah, it's a super cub. Um, oh man. So that was 2007. I worked every summer for fishing lodges, air taxis, kind of all over the state, a lot of Western and Southwest Alaska. That's where a lot of the fishing is. And then I got the job at the feds in 2017 and it doesn't make sense to own an airplane to work all summer in Alaska and most of the fall come back and, and hunt in the fall and then own an airplane. It wouldn't get flown. And so it's not financially like it didn't make sense to me. It didn't add up. And, uh, so then I figured once I'm moving to Alaska full time, I need an airplane and I'm moving to Southwest Alaska where there's no roads. So the only way to access anywhere is with your own transportation. So 2017, May 1st, I bought an experimental super cub from a guy. Nice. And you're, I mean, where you live at, that's not like a place you have to fly into, is it? There's no roads. So we are, if you know where Anchorage is, it's South Central Alaska. We are 300 yeah. miles south, southwest of that. Now, Alaska Airlines comes in here at least once a day, sometimes twice, but there's no road here. So really, you're in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's flown in or it's barged up in the summer. We have barges that come up and bring stuff up on a barge. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. I, I, I enjoy like, so once I had met Adam and the thing was, I didn't even realize I'd seen the stuck in the rut videos and anybody hasn't checked out, 
your the, the YouTube channel definitely would recommend doing it. The hunts are phenomenal. They're always always killing animals in some really cool places and getting to do it and just just regular dudes just getting after it. But I um uh, but once I started following you on Instagram and just seeing your life and it's just like a day in the life of Adam is just it's crazy. One one second you're flying in checking traps in the winter, then you're skinning and you're doing this and you're doing that and it's just it's I, I feel like every man's dream from the outside looking in. <laughs> have you ever wanted to have Levi Morgan, Andy May, Johnny Stewart, and others available at all times? Well, you can with Cyber Scout from Spartan Forge. Cyber Scout is like the chat GPT for outdoors men and women. You can ask it any questions related to bow building, scouting, hunting, survival, and a whole lot more. I think you'll be impressed with how it responds. Cyber Scout is currently out now for a select group of early beta testers and will be available to the rest of you really soon. The entire app is a complete tool for planning your hunt with incredible aerial imagery mapping, journaling, deer prediction, and some of the most accurate and detailed weather data. Use the code EASTMEETSWEST to save 20%, and if you're still on the fence, give the 14-day free trial a chance at SpartanForge.ai. CVA has been America's number one selling muzzleloader brand for over a decade. Hunting with a muzzleloader opens up a ton of hunting opportunities across the U.S., and I've been using the Acura series, but they don't only make badass muzzleloaders. Their line of centerfire rifles are great quality and not terrible on the wallet. The Cascade Short Barrel is ideal for tight quarters, deer drives, and quick shots in the big woods. You can check out their line of muzzleloaders, rifles, and accessories for every season and every range at bpioutdoors.com CVA. If you use the code EASTMEETSWEST10, you'll get 10% off of all CVA products, which includes rifles, muzzleloaders, and accessories. It's pretty cool. It was, uh, it was my dream. And I was the kid growing up reading Outdoor Life magazines, you know, seeing Super Cubs 1965 or whatever with a moose rack strapped to each side on the wing strut. I'm like, dude, that's, that's freaking badass. Like those guys pioneered Alaska. They're in the middle of nowhere. They got to bring their tools and their camp and bad weather. And now that's called Tuesday for me. So, um, it's pretty cool. <laughs> it's taken a shitload of sacrifice and a shitload of money and a lot of hard work. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm finally here and I hear it all the time and I try to inspire people like, dude, if it's your dream, move to Alaska. Buy an airplane, learn to fly. I'm just a regular white guy. That's it. You know, just a fat yeah. kid from North Idaho that saw this and put in a lot of time and dedication, built up a skill set, bought an airplane. But that's the cool thing about America. You can do it. You know, no yeah. one's stopping you from doing it. No. And, and, uh, th- th- that's what I think is so cool about the stuff that, that you do. And it's just like, you've, you've kind of like, as a kid and even growing up, you like saw these things. Like I want to do that. And you actually went and did it. I feel like many times people say, Oh, I'd love to do that. But then they never put in the the effort to it. And you know, when I said that your life is, you know, a dream life to many now, what, what come to get there is just like a whole nother level. Like you said, the amount of sacrifice and the amount of money and the time and all those different things to do it, but it's a hundred percent, you know, available to do that. I remember growing up, I never thought it was even possible to hunt in Alaska for a normal person from Pennsylvania. I was like, why? Or, you know, even actually started with elk and I'd see on TV and I was like, man, I wish I could do that. And then, 
and then found out that I could and just went out and did it and just, but I didn't really have a plan or any skills that really gave me the, the reason that I could do it, but I just did it. And then you figure it out as you go and you start building on those skills and putting in the work and eventually it kind of works out for you. But, but it definitely takes that all that effort. Look at you now, dude, you're hunting Alaska twice in one year. I know. I, I, very, very thankful to be able to do that. Like, it's just, it's so cool. And, and, you know, you and I were chatting on the phone the other day about moose hunting because you're just like obsessed with moose hunting and, and you've, you've been able to shoot some of the biggest moose that I've ever seen, you know, for a guy coming from Pennsylvania, seeing that. And I'm not, I'm not super familiar with moose, but I do know that they're very, very large moose. They're, Yeah. They're retardedly big. I mean, <laughs> it's, uh, I've, I don't know. I've packed out probably 20 bowls or something. Um, and yeah, every time you still walk up to them, it's not as big of a shock the first time you see it as the first time you saw it, but it, it's still bad. Um, and yeah, I'm not very smart because I've done it a couple of times solo and that's really stupid. It's like, if you have two six point mature, six point bull elk, you know, like a 300 plus inch bull elk, side by side it's about two of those a moose is probably 14 to 1600 pounds a big bull um we like to shoot big top tier moose um and i was never like i never had this dream that i was just going to be super duper into moose i just flew all over western alaska i'd always see them flying beavers and going fishing and i just oh man and the rut starts and they shed their velvet and you're just seeing bulls pop out everywhere and i just thought if i had a super cub i could land there i could hunt over here and I wanted the very best capable airplane to match my skill set. And so that's why I bought the Super Cub. But yeah, they are fucking huge animals, dude. It takes about 10 trips of packing to get a moose out. It sucks. Well, I remember the first time that that was moose hunting has been like, that's been like the top of the bucket list for me. Like, I've wanted to do it. But I remember when I've tried planning my first trip, 2018, I called everybody up there to ask you know, try to get a flight in to get dropped off and hunt with me and my buddy. And every single transporter turned us down because we had never been to Alaska and probably and for good reason. Like they're like, you need to come up here and hunt something else first and make sure you're okay hunting Alaska and packing out animals and, and getting, figuring out the transporting, all those different things first, before you come up and deal with an animal of that size. And I I am, I am thankful that it was that way, you know, getting up there and then hunting caribou and getting to experience it, because I feel like it's one of those things that you're either going to love doing, or you're going to really hate it. And if you get into a situation with like a moose and you have a moose down, you don't know what to do. That's a, that's a really bad situation. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing, there's like five things that really wreck people up here, but one of the biggest of those five, I would say is just the terrain, just walking in Alaska. It was hard for me coming from the Western U S to say, okay, well there's, there's a Ridge right over there, 2000 yards away. We're just going to get right to that Ridge and we'll be there in an hour. You're not there in an hour. You're there in five hours, you know, because you didn't see all the little creeks you had to cross and all the alders and the rock cliffs and everything. And it's just really hard to move around up here. And that really deters people once they want to come back because it's it's swampy, it's wet. Um, the weather's awful. There's tons of bugs. And then if you're going to have an animal that's a mile away from an airstrip or a lake where you're at, it's 10 trips out and you have to go back and forth through there and you start adding up the mileage, you're about to walk through all that. You're looking at some severe pain punishment 
<laughs> yeah. puts, it puts hair on your chest. I'll tell you that. Yeah. I remember uh, when I was up there, when I was hunting caribou, I missed a caribou f- like four and a half miles from camp. And that was the biggest blessing that I feel like that I had. And I ended up shooting one like, I don't know, 500 yards away from camp. So it was much closer. And, w- and me and my buddy doubled up. So we had to pack them both back that day. But it was after like walking in the tundra and under just you know it's just like walking on what they call bowling balls covered in moss essentially it's just it was way more difficult than walking in any of the western states where you're on hard ground all the time it didn't seem that bad and like you said you'll look across the landscape and it looks like relatively flat and or just like open and then all of a sudden what looked like it was knee-high bushes are eight to ten foot tall alders that you didn't even notice and you're going through all this brush and this thick stuff and it's just it's incredible to to me and and so what i want to kind of hear a story uh from you when you were the first time you had to break down a moose by yourself and pack it out what was the story of that oh when i was solo yeah um yeah, well, I do want to throw in there the best uh, – one of my hunting buddies, Justin from Anchorage, one of the best definitions of tundra I've heard is like a waterbed covered with basketballs and bowling balls, 50-50, and then cover that in moss, and you're trying to walk across that. That's like the best definition you can have, and your knees and your leg muscles have muscle memory, and they they have no memory because every step's different. Are you sinking up to your nuts? Are you sinking up to your chest? Is it hard? You know, is it swampy? You're going to sink all the way into your nipples and like muskeg swamp. It sucks. Um, and I throw that in there because it's good for people to have that realization that that's what Tundra's like. And there's a lot of that. But he was supposed to come on me at the hunt um, 2020. And we had lined stuff up. And he ended up bailing on me because he had a really good elk tag, I think, in Utah, a really good opportunity to hunt someplace. So he bailed. And I flew into a place I never hunted before. Um, and I looked around and I found a couple, uh, good bulls. Um, they were by themselves in early September, like the third, I think without cows. And they were just kind of up this drainage. So I found a place I could land the airplane. Um, and that's difficult, but also finding a place where there might be some wind protection because it gets really windy in Alaska and your plane can just totally get ripped out off the ground and go for a ghost ride. And then you don't have a ride home. And I woke up the next morning and there was a little fog in the bottom of this drainage and I wanted to be like headed up towards where I saw those bulls, but I've learned that's one of the hardest things I've found about hunting is when to be patient, when to be aggressive. And I'm like, there's fog in the bottom where all the willows are. That's where the moose are going to be feeding. There's kind of alders up on the hill and I don't see any moose. And so I just waited and I waited for about an hour, a 30 inch bull. I called him in right past the airplane. And most people would shoot that thing like that, like no problem because it's literally right next to the airplane. And I called him in with a bow range, but I'm looking for, I don't, for one, I don't want it to be over day one. And I'm looking for a very mature specimen. I want the oldest animal possible. Um, could be the widest, could be the highest scoring, or just what I figure is a, what a trophy class moose for that area based on what I've seen. And um, yeah, I, I kept glassing, kept glassing. The fog started to burn off and then kind of right at the alder line, there was a bull and I saw his paddle bedded down and I was like, Oh, that looks like a pretty good moose. So I got as close as I could. And I pulled out the spotter. He was pretty good. And he turned his head a few times and I was like, man, he's pretty good. And I thought he was, I knew he was over 70, which is like the bookmark, right? Like the 200 inch mule deer, you know, the uh, 350 inch bull elk. That's like a once a lifetime goal for me to break 70. 
And uh, this moose stood up. He was facing the downwind side, so I couldn't get any closer. I had my bow. There's no way I could get into the bow range of him. And he was looking, and I was right out on an uh, open, sunny hillside. So I couldn't get closer. And there was like hardly a breath of wind, like one to two miles an hour. I'm super dialed on my gun. I cow called, had the spot scope set up with my phone, and I got in the gun. He stood up. He was the only bull there. And I shot him. I held a couple minutes for wind and it actually drifted about eight inches more to the right and hit him in kind of at the high shoulder base of neck and smoked him. It was 774. It was my longest shot ever on an animal, uh, on a moose. I've shot animals further than that. And uh, just perfect conditions. I usually never take a shot over 500 because it's windy and it's not ideal. And sacked him. And then I crossed the creek, right? And you look down the creek, like, oh, I don't need my chest waders, right? It's not that bad. I'll just take my boots off. And the creek is like now a river, right? It's like 30 yards across. It's pretty big when you're getting down in there. And now I'm like pulling up my pack belt because it's it's passing my nuts, right? And my camera, video camera's on the pack belt, my pistol. And I'm like, pretty soon I'm like taking the pack off and like hiking it up like on my shoulders. And I'm like belly button deep, you know? And so there goes my pants, right? And I'm soaked. And so then I get to their side, put my rain pants on, put my boots back on look up and that bull's standing there and he had got back up and he's just standing there sick. Like I shocked his nervous system. And so I pumped two more into his, I put one in the shoulder and the next one right into the, no, one of the lungs and the last one in the shoulder. And I shoot a 338 ultra mag and uh, that sacked him, walked up there. And I remember saying to myself, I was just like, Oh, Brenda, this is not, this is not easy. And I just, I remember saying to myself, it's just like long division. It takes a while, but you just got to start working and you just have to grab a knife, grab a leg and just start going. But it's a lot of work. When you get done, you feel like you've just done like a heavy lifting competition or something like that, because it's four hours of manual labor and cutting and pulling and lifting and flipping hides. And then to do the gutless method on a moose and get it flipped over by yourself, that's agonizing. I can I can't imagine uh, doing that doing that by yourself. And I mean, when you're saying four hours, that's for someone like yourself that's been probably cut up, you know, a ridiculous amount of animals and is skilled at doing that. So it's it, that's that's a, a grueling task. And then you had to go back across the the river to go back over to camp. Or were you able to were you able to move your plane to get any closer? Uh, so that was a short hunt. There was a big storm coming in. And, you know, so as soon as I pull the trigger, it's like frantically sending inreach messages out to everyone. And that's when you realize you don't have a lot of friends, you know, um, and my circle of friends is very small because I'm looking for a person with an airplane who can get off work on a, I think on a Friday or something like that, get off early and come help me. And we'll do that and be selfless. I had a buddy come over and help me, but he landed, you know, um, quite a ways away on a better spot to land. And then I shuttled him to where I had my camp and then we walked down there and um, I had gotten the moose a little closer, but it was still a pretty far pack. It was going to be about a mile and the storm's coming in. And he said, dude, there's no way we're getting that moose up to where you need to land. He's like, you should land on this gravel bar. And I said, that's way too small. And he's like, I've seen you fly. You can do it. And I'm just like, dude, that's freaking tight. It's really narrow. Your wings over the brush on this side, your wings over the water on this side. And it's a curve. And I stepped it off as 290 feet. And my airplane will do that. And we packed all the moose down to there. And I pulled it out, I think, in three trips out of the 290-foot spot. Um, and, yeah, 
didn't crash. So here we are. And that was only about that was only about four to five hundred yards downhill. So um, that's where um, I've taken the moose hunting. They suck so much to pack, but I have a pretty high performance airplane, and I have a skill set over enough screwing up over you know fourteen years of flying airplanes that I can get that airplane some pretty tight spots to pick up that moose instead of carrying it, which is way way better. Yeah, no, I could I could imagine that. Do you find do you when you go on these on the moose hunts? I'm sure it depends on where, but do you t- typically have chest waders with you at all times, or or hip waders? Okay. No, I never wear hip waders because you get too much crap stuck down in them, so they're just going to fill up with stuff. It's worthless. A lot of guys will wear like a waist waiter, like Sims makes a waist top waiter, but I just like chest waders because they're not falling off your ass. I use a Sims G3 waiter. And then one of their light boots, because if you wear chest waiter boots like fly fishing, they're usually they're pretty heavy. They're durable, but they're pretty heavy. And it feels like you're just bringing around 20 pound weight. And so I bring like a, I think it's called like a vapor tread boot. It's pretty light, but it provides pretty good ankle support. Um, I had chest waiters in the airplane. So I told my buddy on the inReach, make sure you bring your waiters. Once I got back, you know, I crossed again. This time I was completely naked when I went back across. And I was just like, I was like dude, I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere, but this would be a great time for someone to pull out a phone and be videoing, you know, a naked Sasquatch with a moose with a moose quarter strapped to his back walking across the river, right? And uh, I didn't want to soak the only clothes I had left. And so I was like, what are you supposed to do? And uh, so, so I did that. And, um, yeah, I had my buddy bring waders, and then we were able to cross, you know. And so... Yeah, if it's a river-based hunt where I know they'll be crossing a lot of streams and different things, or it's swampy, I'll bring waders. If not, I'm I'm usually just in just regular clothing, you know. Yeah, gators. Have you had any? Uh, have you had any trouble with bears when you're when you're uh, cutting up any of the animals up there? Oh yeah, I've had quite a few stories. My wife almost got killed, you know, by one and shoot it like five yards of the four fifty four. Um, I had a caribou hunt with a kid that i had like a pretty good eight and a half foot sow and a couple cubs come up onto a caribou carcass and my gun was like right next to the carcass but i was five feet away loading up backpacks with meat and so then i couldn't get to my gun didn't have a pistol and luckily we were able to back out of there and i was able to kind of like shoo her off with the airplane and come back in and pick up the meat and then i bought a 454 um and i shot a black bear out of my tent one time i sheep hunt my brother while travis you know, and uh, it was chewing on the tent and stolen a bunch of gear. And then it was chewing on our tent. And he woke me up because I'm a pretty deep sleeper. And uh, it was, you could see like the slobber on the side of the tent where it bit holes in the Kuyu tent. And I just unzipped a little vent of their like Mountain Star tent in the three season one. I just stuck the barrel of the gun out. And I was like, just kind of lined it up like a, you know, like a traditional archery bow. And I was just like, ah, looks close enough. And I shot it and there's just like a little hundred pounder. But, um, I've had a fair amount of issues, but I know I don't really like fear bears. They've stolen some meat before and stuff like that. Stole a buddy's cape. They'll bury it. They really like moose carcasses. They'll come and bury those. Um, but I don't know. I'm not really necessarily afraid of them. You got to be, got to be cognizant of that, but I don't yeah. think they're too much to worry about. Yeah. I feel like that's like with people that aren't from there, not around grizzly uh country essentially like they just it's just different you know to to be able to be there i mean i i don't have a ton of experience other than alaska and montana as far as like being in grizzly country and i saw three or four when i was up in alaska one came through our 
our tent area the one night, but I slept right through it. I only knew because there was just a big pile of steaming shit uh, outside when, when I left for that portion. But I've never had much experience of it, but I thought like, you know, like with my moose hunt this year, where it being a little bit more thicker country and some stuff like that, just like, you know, bear awareness type deal. I, I am, uh, I was planning on, I haven't bought it yet. Uh, I was just talking to my brother about it, but I'm going to buy a 10 millimeter to take up there with me. Do you recommend, do you recommend that round at all or that, that gun? Well, I'm shooting a new bow this year and I am pumped. After playing around with the buddy's Hoy RX-8, the smile on my face made the decision for me. The first thing I noticed with the new Hoyts were their extremely smooth draw cycles and the ability to adjust the back wall to make it rock solid like I prefer. I outfitted my own RX-8 with the inline accessories that made installation extremely easy and balanced out the bow. My favorite accessory so far is a simple one. It's the Go Sticks 2.0 adjustable legs to make your bow like a tripod, but it doesn't interfere with any part of the bow or the limbs or anything like that. In addition, the integrated kickstand within the HBX Exact Cams protect your string from excess wear when you put your cam into the dirt. Ground hunting or spot and stock just got easier. If you want to experience what I'm talking about, head to your nearest Hoyt dealer and take a test drive yourself. You can learn more at Hoyt.com. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a consumer-based hunting show unlike any other. It provides an interactive learning experience where you can try all things mobile hunting and learn from the best in the business. Come experience an unbiased, community-based environment where you can improve your hunting skills and find the right equipment for your needs. I'll be speaking at the Nor'easter Show in Mannheim, Pennsylvania at Spooky Nook Sports from August 9th to 11th, 2024. So come check it out or either of the other shows in uh, Michigan and Georgia. You can purchase tickets online at themobilehuntersexpo.com or grab tickets at the door. I'll see you there. No, I don't, but I'm really hard on gear. And so I have a Taurus Raging Hunter 454. Um, They just came out of the 500 and I'm probably going to buy that one. So I'll have the 454 as a backup. Um, I've just had too many failures with auto loaders and shotguns and stuff with dirt and sand and rust and that revolver lives under the back seat of my airplane it's there right now so when i step away from the airplane i strap it onto my chest and i i neglect the gun heavily but it always works the wheel gun's always going to work um there's a lot of guys that run a 10 mil all my buddies who are like special forces they're dead set on 10 mils because their their argument is i can dump 17 rounds in like three to four seconds um i think that's really good and you're not looking to kill the bear you're looking to deter the bear so you can step to the side, grab your rifle, kill the bear. That's what you need to do. Because your rifle's in your pack. You're packing a moose quarter. He knocks your buddy over. You're just trying to deter the threat, get your rifle, kill the bear, or deter the threat so he goes the other way. And then, yeah, hopefully dies or you can finish him off or something like that. Um, but I think the biggest thing to take away from that is to use a buffalo boar round. My, we use buffalo boars my, when my wife had to, her brother had to kill that bear. And 360 grain buffalo bores, it's just, that is really, really important to have that hard cast bullet to um, kill those big bears. And it was a 10 foot four brown bear. And then she had to kill a moose that was coming after this year and shot it like eight or nine yards, same round. Um, so that bullet construction, I've talked to the owner, Tim, and he, he really knows bullets and that is a kick-ass round. So regardless of what you do, I think 10 mil, you can shoot a 220 or 240. 
if you put 10 bullets of 240 grains into a bear, that's a lot of no thank you. You know, when they're coming at a face full of fists and claws and fur and everything at you, and you just shoot right to the center of mass, I think that's a good option. Yeah, it's and shoot funny. it, you're, you're comfortable with it. You know, get it, shoot the shit out of it, shoot a light load. That's what we do on a 454. We shoot a 45 Colt to practice, right? And then put the big, the big loads in there when you go out shed hunting or when you go hunting, because then when you have adrenaline, it's not going to matter. So shoot the light pussy loads of the 10 mil. And then when you go to Alaska, load it up with the good stuff. And I think that's a good choice. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually have a tab pulled up with the Buffalo boars. Cause I was someone else recommended to get those and said, don't get any other round, get those Buffalo boars. That's uh, the way to go. But, um, it's good. It's to, the good standard in Alaska. Yeah. That's like the standard up here. And, um, it also depends too. Like for me, I'm in, I'm in the Alaska Peninsula. The biggest, some of the biggest bears in the world are here. Right. So if I have issues, it could very well be a nine to 10 foot bear. If you're going to be where we talked about you going, I mean, an eight foot bear is pretty good. Right. So we're looking at a smaller size animal where a 10 mil is probably more suitable. You know, 44 mag would probably be suitable. You never have too much gun in a defensive situation, but you want when you can shoot quickly and accurately. So, um, I think that's fine. You know, if you're going to Kodiak, probably not, you want the biggest gun, but yeah, yeah. where you're I'll at. Be there and I'll be there in, uh, late October, November when I'm on blacktail there, but, um, yeah. which, yeah, but the, uh, back to, uh, I do have a 44 mag too, and that was my original plan, but I, yeah, I just kind of went back and forth on the wheel gun as far as being able to get rounds off versus, you know, an auto loader, like, like a 10 mil. I still think a 10 mil will be fine for Kodiak. It's not ideal. Like you're, if you're going to be guiding there all the time, what I tell people, everyone in the party, we've learned this the hard way. My wife almost died. Everyone in the party needs a pistol on their chest at all times. When you go take a shit and walk over to the outhouse, pistol has got to be on you. Cause if it's not on you, it's worthless. Right. And it's got to be something that's light enough and uh, compact enough. That you want to carry. That's why I got that 454. It's like just over three pounds. But the gun should always be on you. The rifle should be in your hand. The rifle in the backpack doesn't do shit. And the best pistol you can have is a rifle in your hand. You know, even a 30-30 is going to carry more power and more knockdown than a pistol. So keep the rifle in your hands at all times and wear the pistol. And that's like your last defense if the bear's on you and you got to shoot it. Okay. Uh, that, yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And, and, uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to get a chest rig too. Cause I've always just carried a pistol on my backpack, uh, hip belt, but yeah, that doesn't really do you any good when you have it off and you're, and you're working on quartering an animal or doing anything there. Yeah. Or you know how many times you dump the backpack and run the last couple hundred yards to get up to a shooting position and then boom, come over the ridge and there's a bear. So I use a gunfighters. Uh, it's a Kydex one. I really like their stuff. And they're made in North Idaho. And my wife uses a leather diamond D one that's okay. But um, I like to run the gunfighters lower, like over your belly button. And then I run up here, I run the binos. And so I have access to both. If you run both, it's like sticking way out here, you know? Yeah. I was just going to ask you that, how you run it with like a bino harness, but you just run that lower, keep the bino harness up, up higher. Okay. Yeah, I, I run the bino harness maybe a little higher than I normally would. You know, some guys run it pretty low, but I run it just regular, maybe a little higher. And then I run that chest rig just a little bit looser where it droops down. But I can get that gun in there secure and have good retention, but I can also pull it out one-handed anytime you need it. And uh, you almost you usually always pull it out a couple times in a year just because, you know, um, 
stuff happens. You come around a corner, there's a bear. Uh, Kodiak bears are weird. They're kind of like, uh, I don't know, they hear a shot in the dinner bell. We experienced that a couple of years ago when we were in Kodiak. But overall, I would say the bears you guys have down there, um, Wyoming, Montana, that stuff, those are, those are the scary bears because they have no threat. Our bears up here, when they see people, they're getting killed. Everyone's killing bears. You know, most residents are hunting these places. So they're going to be shooting bears. They want to go the other way. When yeah. you see a grizzly bear down down by Jackson or whatever, they don't have any predators. You know, they're cock of the block. So they're coming in. They're going to steal your elk, and they don't care because no one's ever shown them that. Yeah. No, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and back to the story about your, your wife and your brother-in-law there with that experience, I think that's something just to, to know, I watched that video and anybody can watch it on stuck in the ruts, YouTube channel, but the fact that the gun had jammed and, you know, you think you have, you know, a rifle and a pistol, you're good. But the lesson you were talking about there with everybody having a pistol as a backup, because things can happen like where the gun jams. Yeah, I got a spring bear hunt this year, and I got a fall brown bear hunt on the peninsula with a buddy with a tag this year. And this spring hunt, we're each going to have a pistol. He's going to have a 10 mil, all of a 454 or 500. He's going to have either one of my 338s or a 7 PRC, and I'm going to have a 338 rub. And so that's four weapons right there. So say two break or two fall off, we still have more um, in the event of something goes wrong, right? And then in the fall, he's primary bow hunting. And then we're going to have me and another buddy there. So we're going to have three pistols, two rifles, and a bow. It's unrealistic to have the bow hunter be carrying a rifle and a bow when you're doing a fall bear hunt over fish. The primary reason is, you know, to shoot one over fish. That being said, if we see a giant walking away a couple hundred yards away, we'll get in position and shoot him with the rifle. But, um, yeah, the more weapons, the better. Yeah. When it comes to bears. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And you, uh, so there was something else kind of shifting gears a little bit here, but I, I saw you were talking about on, I think it was on Instagram the other day about how, when you, when you go hunting, you try, if you're going to go with a hunting partner, you try to go with people that you consider better than yourself and to be able to, to learn from and do that. Do you feel like, you know, as you've built these skills up in Alaska and really anywhere, as far as hunting, I mean, you killed a big, a giant bull in Montana this year and everything else. Like I consider you a very good hunter, but you talked about like hunting with people better than yourself. Do you think that's what's helped you get to this point? Or do you think it was a a lot of just being out in the field and trial and error? Um, well, to be honest, I got into college and I kind of started partying and drinking more. And then I met my wife and her family was stuck in the rut and married into that and that was like a real kick in the ass i quit drinking when i met my wife it's really hard to go out kind of 2 30 in the morning when you're at the bar at two o'clock you know and you're loaded so it's really hard to do that so that helps immensely um getting off the booze and then being surrounded by like travis tom trevor tana um that whole family is highly successful and you're waking up at one o'clock to leave the house at two to get to the trailhead at three and hike in two and a half hours in the dark to go elk hunting that's that was never normal to me. I didn't I didn't know people walked into the dark like that. So that really helped. And then that drove me to be um, hyper successful. And I want I'm just I think one of the biggest things about me, you know, you hear people that I was talking to a friend about this the other day on the phone. Um, you can say, guys, oh, he's he's a really good hunter. He's a really good killer. There's multiple assets that that person has. And it's like they're highly motivated. They're really good at reading animal behavior. 
they have other skill sets that all kind of bundle into this, you know, and I want to hunt with people that personally I see have maybe not everything, but they, like, I, I have better flying skill sets with people that I hunt with. Right. But I hunt with guys that are strictly bow hunters. Right. And they know way more about bow hunting than me. And I'm like, Hey, let's go do this and do this. And they say, no, we can't do this because this would happen. And so I learn, even though I'm not bow hunting necessarily, I'm maybe the caller. I learn how to be a better bow hunter, you know, and that stuff helps me. So I try and surround myself with people who are better than me and who I can learn from. Now that's very selfish. And I'm a very selfish person when it comes to who I choose to hunt with, because those days are very limited. Right. And we've all hunted with someone who's a jackass and it just, it kills you. It wrecks this thing that you love so much. And so you don't want to do that. So I'm very cautious about who I do hunt with. Um, and I just want to have a good time and basically talk shit 90% of the time to my buddies. And when it's time to go, when it's, when it's time to go into kill mode, there's no words that need to be said. There is nothing that will stop me and this person from going over there, killing that large animal and getting it out. And if something really hits the fan, it'll be a cool story. Bring it on. Yeah. And I think like, especially in the places like that where you're hunting, it's so much more important to have people like that or, or people that are willing to do whatever, you know, and, and I've learned that from when I started Western hunting, like I have a very small group of people that I will do those types of hunts with, because it's like, I need the people that when we're in pain and hurting, they're laughing and still talking shit to each other and, and just like making fun out of the situation, even though it sucks, but you know, you have to do it. Or if there's an animal on that Ridge over there, that's going to, you know, they're not going to be like, well, you know, that's kind of far or like come up with some sort of excuse, just people that want to, want to go and do it. And I've been very lucky that, that my family that I've grown up around and some of my close friends are just, they're that way. They're killers. And I love spending time around them because I know that, you know, they're holding me accountable. I'm holding them accountable. And it's just, I don't know. I've learned that, that I need to be around those types of people. And yeah, it is definitely selfish too, from the standpoint of like, it, it makes, makes me better. I feel like, and, and makes you, when you have that little voice inside your head, that's trying to make you be a wimp to, uh, to not be that way. Cause you also don't want to let anybody else down, um, or hear it from them really. <laughs> yeah. The biggest thing you don't want to have happen is have your buddies out hike you out pack you and outlast you on a hunt. And I've been on hunts and I've seen it with people when that airplane leaves, people are getting terrified. They're in the middle of nowhere with no communications. We all have an in-range. We all have sat phones, stuff like that, but they get scared. And the kind of people I hunt with are, you know, day nine of a 10-day hunt or maybe day 11 of a 10-day hunt where it's been just shit rain. You've been grinding it out. You haven't even left the tent. You're running out of food. And then like the last 10 minutes of the hunt, you see a bull, you run over there three miles away from camp, you shoot it, and you know you're sleeping there. You're not walking back and you're standing on the mountain. You're going to freeze your ass off and it's going to suck. You're not going to die because you're properly prepared, but it's going to freaking suck. And you sit there all night and you shiver and you embrace the suck together. And it's going to be a freaking rad story, but you got the Everything happened and you made it happen. You don't puss out. And that's where I can't stand someone who's like, well, you know, it's a long way to him and hod. It's like, no, get your shit. We're going. If there's time, grab your sleeping pad. If not, we're out. Yeah. And that's how I want to do it. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree on that aspect. And I think like, I know from, I guess with having the podcast and people reaching out that are trying to get in these hunts, that's a, that is a big thing of like, 
I don't have anybody that can go with to do some of these things. And that's, that's tough. You know, I don't really have a great answer for someone with that, you, you know, with not being able to find somebody that's, that's just difficult, you know? Yeah, it's hard, but I mean, you could, you could do what you did. You had to learn Alaska with a buddy and you didn't get your hand held, like get your best friend from high school and say, Hey, let's try and do it with caribou hunt, you know, 40 mile country up off the brooks or whatever. Let's just figure it out. We may totally fail and not even see a caribou. We may shoot one or two. We don't know, but let's go try and just figure it out. And you start learning together. Let's go do an elk hunt in Montana or Colorado or Idaho or something like that. And we may hear one bugle or we may even call on a bull and miss it. We don't know, you know, but just yeah. start trying to figure it out together. Or you could sit on the couch and eat Cheetos and think about what if, you know, like most guys do. Yeah. And I was just talking the other day um, on a podcast about like, you know, it's, it almost takes little baby steps too when you're going to do it. Like the first time I hunted in Colorado after three days of being in the backcountry, I felt like like the biggest baby. Like I was like, oh, I needed to get out of here. You know, like I just felt like I was like, for lack of better terms, felt like I was dying, but I really, everything was fine. But you know, it was like the first time doing that. And then, and then fast forward eight years and I'm spending 21 days back there. And it's just like, you grow these skills and that kind of mental side of it over time of just doing it. And, but you don't, you can't get there without doing it. Yeah. And we've all been there where you puss out on a hunt and you make all these reasonings why you need to come out. You know, oh, my cousin's got a wedding or, oh, you know, I, I could really use a shower. Man, a burger sounds good. Or my uh, my favorite is like, oh, the high school football knee injury comes back for people, you know. And then you get out of the field. Guess what? There's nothing new on Instagram. There's nothing new on the news. No one missed you. And you're sitting on the couch two days later after you got a burger and a pizza. And you're like, shit, I wish I was back there suffering sitting in a tent because I'm not killing anything here on the couch. Yeah. You know? No, that's – that. Um, I'm in alignment with you there. So what about, uh, you've been doing a lot of trapping, which has been like, I don't know. I've been loving watching it on your, on your Instagram stories and everything else. As far as explain what trapping looks like for you in Alaska and what, what the purpose of it is for you. Well, trapping used to be tons of disappointment, right? Because you're trapping in North Idaho and different things like that. And I was a little bit successful in coyotes and bobcat and stuff like that. Um, when I moved to Alaska, I really didn't start right away. I didn't have a set of skis to fly in the winter. Um, and all skis are basically like big snowboards. You take off the tires, you strap a big snowboard to the axle. You don't have any brakes and you're just able to kind of float on top of snow. It's really great. Um, but the best thing about Alaska is it's so remote. And so there's a lot of untouched areas. There's a lot of areas that are hard to access. So I don't access anything close to the town I live in because there's guys with a snow machine up here that will trap all that. And frankly, it's not very good trapping because there's a lot of pressure um, and not a lot of fur. So I'm going into remote areas to trap. And I had just seen a lot of Wolverine sign. And I'd always thought about making Wolverine traps and catching a few. So I went out one year. And the first year I went out, I trapped a bunch of them. And uh, since then, I've just got better and I've perfected different ways to do it. But the, like the number one rule of trapping is like to set on sign. And when you fly around the winter and you see Wolverine tracks, they're pretty easy to define because they have kind of a weird pattern of how the track lays out and how they run. You just take the prevailing wind, you set on the upwind side of the drainage they came through. And they're not very smart. They're not like a wolf or a coyote or anything. They'll just stick their face right in a 330 condor bear trap. And um, I set them into a five-gallon bucket with a piece of beaver in the back. And then like a lot of gusto, which is a really 
skunky loud scent and uh you know check them every 10 days fly by if there's a wolverine hanging out of the trap i i land and i pick it up if there's no further i keep going so but it's all airplane based but um like i said before highly motivated i'm not doing six traps like i'm doing 24 traps and i'm set i think in like seven different drainages and i have nine to ten different places i land so that's a shitload of steel out there but it's highly productive and i don't trap starting in november when the days are short and there's not a ton of snow i wait till it's right i know all my spots where i'm gonna go and i go out like this year and i set everything in one day and i hit it hard for five weeks and i pull the traps be out there screwing around and trying to check once a week and the weather's bad and there's that's really limiting in the winter I just go out, I hit it hard, I know where I need to be, and I get done with it. Yeah, and, and I was going to ask you about the weather. Like in the winter time, is that hard as far as flying in? And, and do you have to really take advantage of windows, or is the weather not as bad as I'm thinking it is? We have plenty. I mean, it's pretty nice outside here today. Um, we have a lot of sunny days, uh, but it can get pretty windy, and that limits you. And then any kind of moisture, if it's cold, will freeze. and You can't have ice or anything on the wings like that. So that's a pretty limiting factor. Um, and then just daylight, you know, once you get into mid January and you really start gaining, you're gaining like four to five minutes a day. It's nice. And then February is really good, you know? So that's when I do a lot of trapping. There's good snow usually in the first prime, you know, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. And, and, and you're still getting pretty good money out of those furs now, correct? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I sell it for great money, but it's it's all through Instagram. There's no money in the fur market, like taking fur to auction or anything. I would still do it. I might save them if I had to go to auction, but um, I don't know. I have a I have a pretty good clientele, I'd say, off Instagram of doctors, lawyers. I have a couple in the freezer right now that need to be shipped this week to tax service. The guys buy, you know, and I kind of feel bad because they're like, man, I don't want to buy someone else's fur because I'm the kind of guy that the only mounts I have in my house are stuff i've killed but when am i going to kill a wolverine because a lot of places you don't even see them and you can't hunt them you know and i hunt more than the average guy in alaska and i've only seen two in the fall and i've always been airborne when i saw them you know so they're really elusive i think highly nocturnal um there's a lot up here in alaska but from a guy lower 48 they'll buy fur for me and then i'll send it to a taxidermist or people just buy them to hang up on the wall you know get it tanned and put in their den or something like that. They're, they're a super badass animal, like hands down. One of the coolest animals I've ever been around. Yeah, man. I, I, uh, I just, again, seeing it through, through your Instagram, I was just like, they're just such a cool animal and you, yeah, you're not going to find that really anywhere else. And and you catch quite a few wolves too. Yeah. This year we really started getting more, um, the whole not having a full-time job allows you to be a full-time trapper and trapping is a freaking full-time job. I mean, you're constantly, you get in snow, you're checking snares, you're rebating stuff like that. Um, the Wolverine trapping takes a lot of maintenance and different things. And then just getting out there, pulling the fur you have, pulling it inside, letting it thaw out, and then doing all the fur handling. It's an art and I've gotten pretty good at it, but it's a lot of time, man. I have hundreds of hours this winter of just handling fur and getting it ready to sell and everything i do is taxidermy prep so it can be full body mounted there's no shortcuts taken or anything like that um because i'm selling to really high-end markets i want it to be a professional job but yeah um i was able to target a lot more of the wolves this year and that's only with snares because we do footholds i feel like if we're on a snow machine you could uh 
you can go when the weather's shitty, right? But with an airplane, it could be shitty for three weeks. If you have a foothold, that wolf is going to sit there and suffer in the trap. Now, we don't have any trap check laws um, because, frankly, that would kill people in Alaska if you had to, like, be set to check once every three days like Idaho. People would die because they'd go out with negative 50 and stuff happens. Um, but I don't run any footholds. It's all snares, and they're lighter. They're more effective, and they kill. And so the wolf can be dead for two weeks. And by the time you get there, it's dead frozen there. So it's going to be dead frozen there in the trap, or it's going to be dead frozen in your back of your shed waiting to be skinned. So they work pretty good for my setup. Yeah, and it's it's crazy. Trapping is one of those things that I've never learned to do, but my dad and and his father and like the whole family was huge in it back. I mean, they used to take it to market because everything was worth so much. And there's, there's photos that I've seen old pictures of my dad and his brothers. That's what they bought their first vehicles with was trapping money, you know, of red Fox and all these different animals that they, you know, they had trapped around. And, and again, it's one of those things that I feel like I wish, I mean, I still can learn it, but it's one of those things that I feel like is such an effective way to take some of those animals out because there's not, and they're, they're running. I mean, I just know Pennsylvania cause that's where I live at, but there's a lot of those animals that are overpopulated cause people aren't and trying to hunt, you know, even coyotes is, is difficult and you're not getting too many of them unless you have dogs or something to be able to, to do that. And, you know, an effective way to do that is by trapping. Oh yeah. There's uh it's crazy how fast animals will pull out of an area when the wolves move in there and there's a drainage, I used to look for moose sheds and there would be the bulls of winter in one little, you know, corner of this river system where all the food was. And if they're unpressured, just like deer or elk, they'll just all drop their sheds there pretty consistently year after year. And then one year it was like, I pick up 10 sheds there. And then next year it was like one. And then we kept seeing these wolves every October and November on this drainage and it was post rut. So the bulls would be down there with the cows. They're just worn down. And so the wolves would just be picking them off left and right. And two wolves could kill any moose. In my opinion, three is much easier. And then this is a pack of seven or eight. So it was like, not even a problem, right? A couple on each hamstring, a couple on the nose and a couple other kind of distracting it. And those moose are just so worn down. They haven't eaten in a month and they've just been screwing and fighting. So, um, we went in there, I shot a caribou. I took the whole carcass, like guts, the rib cage, just the bones, the hide, and the everything else. I wrapped it up in a tarp, put it on the wing strut like you would a moose, and then I went and I landed by this drainage. I packed it in there, and I put it into the thickest brush I could, and then we set snares around it. But the snares that catch are the snares that are the furthest away because the wolves are less wary. And so the ones that were catching were like 150 to 200 yards away where they would be just nonchalantly coming down the trail with their head up like, Oh, we're not even close to food. And then they hit that snare. And then the snares I use are 12 feet and they have a kill spring on them. So like once they hit that snare, their first instincts to run. And when they run that snare has got like a non-relaxing lock that comes down and it doesn't let that cable loosen. But then once that lock hits, it's got this spring on it. It's just like a big music spring. And then that thing opens up and it like ratchet straps that spring down and that cable around their neck and, Sometimes they're dead within two minutes, you know, so it's very effective. Yeah, no, that's yeah. And just, just thinking of that, like the way you just explained it, that's a lot of work to be able to go and do 
to to be able to catch oh, sure, these yeah. wolves and do like that's you know taking a carcass and then flying it to another location dropping it setting the traps coming back in and checking them the skinning process all of those things in the grand scheme of things what you're charging for them really isn't that much no um because abgas is ten twenty four a gallon up here so that's like a shitload of money you know just on top of broken airplane parts and six grand in insurance a year and all the things that cost money but I told myself, I'm going to be screwing around flying anyways in the winter. I might as well try and recoup a little bit of the cost trapping. And I want to be, for once in my life, I want to be continuously successful. Trapping is full of um, disappointment, right? You just un, un, traps that are set off or there's no fur or you have, you have misses. And I was tired of that. So I said, I'm going to go balls to wall on trapping. I'm going to lose, possibly even lose money, right? But I'm gonna I'm gonna be successful, and so I'll do whatever it takes to be successful, even if it takes losing money. But with all the animals I've caught this year, I've made a little bit, which is good to kind of uh, recuperate some of that cost. Because yeah, everyone wants a wolf, and everyone wants a wolverine. So, and it felt really good too to trap that whole pack of wolves because lately I went in there like a month later, boom, all the moose were right back in there. They just like almost like you think they look up at the airplane and smile. It's like my dog, you know, <laughs> because. <laughs> the pack is the pack of seven or eight wolves is gone. So there's no more hundred pound modern saber tooth tigers going in there trying to rip your rip your babies apart or rip your hamstrings out and tear your guts apart while you're sitting there dying, you know? So yeah, the moose appreciate it and they're right back where they should be and they're feeding and they're doing their thing. So that felt good. Oh, that's awesome. And and the yeah, that the big bull's looking up, he's like, Well dang, this is kind of bittersweet because I know that guy's gonna come in here and try to kill me in the fall, but at least I get another nine months before he comes back in. <laughs> let, let the chest let the chest match begin. I mean, I, I love wolves, I respect them, they're the smartest animal hands down. They have like six cents and I love moose and I'm looking for one big moose. And if he's not the one, he gets a pass, you know. Um the last bull I shot, I passed up probably twelve to fifteen Boone and Crockett bulls before I shot that one, just because I was looking for the right special moose, you know? So yeah, they're safe for now. Yeah, dude, that's phenomenal. I, I, I love seeing it. And like, and as again, I keep referring back to, to my trip because it's like, it's been my dream to go up there and hunt moose and then seeing you do that and, and watching it. It's just, it's awesome to, to be able to, to see that and, and see you chase these giant animals. And you come to that point cause you got to learn it and just, yeah, and get, just put in the work for it. Yeah, and we were talking. I've started to do some consulting for guys. I, I was helping a lot of people for free, but it just got to like literally I was answering like hundreds of people a year. And so I started to do some moose consulting and stuff with guys like you and I talked a little bit about planning for hunt, what gear you should bring, what I mean, Alaska is so diverse where you're going to be versus where I'm going to be night and different. Night, or sorry, night and day different to the country. Um, and the genetics of the moose and different things and the transportation in or out of there. So I've started doing a little bit of that on the side of my entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurship and um, helping guys out. Cause I feel like a couple hundred bucks of an investment when you're going to drop eight to 10,000 on a moose hunt up here is a pretty good investment for something. And um, I think I have the background to kind of back it up, you know? No, I'd, so. I'd highly, highly recommend that. Like, I mean, I think, in any area of my life, whether it's been hunting or business or whatever, I've paid for things to get 
access to people that know way more than I do that have had that experience. And that can reduce your learning curve or just like bad experiences tenfold. I mean, you, you've, you spend more time in the, in the field in Alaska than anybody I personally know. And it's like being able to get that, you know, whether it's a, a phone call consultation or like you were talking about doing those Voxer things where what mm-hmm. they call Voxer days where someone can have 24 hour access to you, I believe, and yeah. ask questions back and forth. And, and like that stuff is so valuable and can save you a ridiculous amount of time and heartache from, from bad planning. Yeah. I wish I would have had that option when I was up here. Cause there was a lot of, um, steep learning curve that I had to figure out. And there's some old timers here that helped me out in different things, but yeah, it was a lot of just trying to figure it out on your own, different things like that, you know, just little things like a lot of people don't know you got to bring the meat out on the bone up here. So like, what's the best bone saw to bring that's the lightest weight. I've gone through a bunch of them for Alaska and different things like that. Just little tips and tricks. Um, I don't think Alaska is necessarily hard hunting. Like hunting elk in Montana was very difficult. I kept walking over ridges and cow elk would just bust me like a lead cow. And I forgot how hard elk hunting and how smart they are, um, how hard that hunting is. But Alaska is really hard with the weather and the logistics, you know, and that's a lot of the planning. It goes in, okay, I got all my stuff here. Now the easy part's hunting, right? Because the weather is good for the next two days. Now I kill one. What are the logistics to get all this out and back to my house in Pennsylvania? That's a lot. You know, yeah, I was just talking you to have to do it. about that yesterday. I was like, man, we got to really figure out the whole, like getting the meat, you know, for successful, getting the meat back to the States and the head and like figuring out the best way to do that. The most cost effective way, like all of those things, you know, with my caribou, it wasn't as difficult because I was able to cut it up, put it in, uh, insulated fish boxes, freeze it and, check his baggage and i cut the the antlers off folded them up taped them up put them in a cardboard box and it went as check luggage you know i got the stuff off or i got it off at uh in pittsburgh and loaded up my truck and went home but a moose is a bigger animal so you know you know say i'm successful with it that's that's a little bit more difficult in the planning yeah you're gonna have uh, we've sent meat home in those fish boxes just like get it back to fields because a lot of times it needs to come out of the field on the bone depending on what unit you're in and we'll just rough cut it into those fish boxes you know and you can bring you know fish boxes either 50 pounds or up to 100 pounds and you can bring 10 or 12 of those home you know like a whole pallet worth of moose meat but you're gonna have like finished cut off the bone like 550 to 650 pounds just of meat you know so you're looking at like two bull elk worth of meat and then the antlers will either take like garden hose bring a cheap garden hose and you can cut it and put all those pieces in a, like a Ziploc or a bunch of spent shotgun shells and then duct tape all that stuff to the horns. And um, you can do that. But the cool thing about Alaska Airlines, they fly up here. They have a lot of hubs. Like they have, I think they go to Pittsburgh. And so you yeah, can fly all that. You can fly all that stuff. And then we're a known shipper. Um, what I tell a lot of people, we're a known shipper for Alaska Air Cargo. So you can get sh- set up on a shipping account and then you can just ship it as cargo. And it's, it's cheaper than check baggage if you have a whole bunch. And you can just ship it put free stickers on it. It'll go from Anchorage into a walk-in when you drop it off and it's going to sit in that walk-in. They're going to ship it when they can, when the availability is there on the plane, it'll go to Seattle and then direct to Pittsburgh. And it's going to sit in their walk-in until you show up with your driver's license and pick it up. And so that handles all the meat. And I think Alaska Airlines, you can bring the antlers on for a moose without splitting them. They're, they're pretty cool about that. Really? We've done that before. Yeah. No, and, and yeah, because Alaska Airlines, that's I I got their credit card 
three or four years ago now just to build points for it. Actually, I'll have both my flights up there this year covered free in points just because that's what I've used as oh, my yeah. business credit card for the for the last however many years, literally just so I could go hunt Alaska and do it at a more reasonable cost, I guess. Yeah, I think I just had, I was talking to a buddy about this. I think you get it. You get three, you get 40,000 miles, which will pretty much cover you if you're coming up here for a trip for most places and you have to use like, three thousand dollars on it in the first month or two and it's like put your put your internet payment on there put your your other payments instead of using your debit card use that card for just two months credit cards are horrible right they totally screw you and everything high interest i just paid off a shitload of credit cards right but just set yourself on a standard i'm going to use this alaska airlines card every time i'd use my debit card and i'm going to treat it just like my debit card and then i'm going to get the invoice i'm going to pay it off if you pay that off you get that 40 or fifty thousand miles and then those just sit in your account. And then when you go to Alaska, your flight's paid for. So it's like a free thousand bucks. Yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent. That's exactly what I did for it. And it was like the best. And I, and I still use it and I just pay it off every month. Um, but for my business expense, so I keep earning miles and yeah, literally I'll, I should be able to get me and my camera guy up there for the first hunt and at least me back on to Kodiak all for free as long as prices don't go crazy on flights. But as of looking, yep. I think I have like 130,000 points or something like that now. And, uh, Man. so it'll be, it'll be, it'll be nice to do that because it's not cheap to, to fly commercially up there either. No, but yeah, if you can be diligent and pay it off every, every month, like you said, that's where they screw you. Cause there's guys like me. Oh, I'm going to pay it off. And that's how I started. Right. And then you get behind on bills and you start racking up and then they kill you on the interest. But yeah, if you can do that, it's it's no brainer why you would not do that. You don't gain anything from using a debit card. You might as well build miles to hunt Alaska. Yep, that's exactly right. But anyways, Adam, I I won't take up any more of your time. But I, I was excited to be able to have you on, and I appreciate you coming on here and talking with me. And I hope that anybody that was listening to this, if they're in need of wolf uh wolverine furs or moose consulting or anything else to to be able to reach out to you um your instagram is what what is your instagram name again uh it's grenda 89 my last name g-r-e-n-d-a 89 and then yeah stuck in the rut is spelled stuck the letter n and then the rut on youtube and we got a pretty big youtube presence i think we're about one hundred eighty thousand subscribers we got some spring idaho hunts dropping right now and then um i had a hell of a year last year so i got some big hunts coming up that big horn i shot in idaho that elk and then the biggest moose i've shot this year is going to be on there pretty soon so yeah follow us on youtube and yeah dude i appreciate you having me on i appreciate it yeah i'll put all the links in the show notes for everybody too so they can go and check that out and yeah again thank you so much for for coming on and doing this Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.